0: All right. Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, let me open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we just want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today, and we just pray, Lord God, that you would just uh, really minister to people. We know that many of us have issues in life. We are distracted by circumstances. Things are pressing down on us. Issues, decisions that need to be made, or whatever it may be, and well, we just pray today that you would help us to focus on you and hear you today. And I pray, God, you bless each person here and may they receive from you. And we commit this time to you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, a long time ago, as you probably know, in a very famous trial scene, there was a gentleman named Pilate and he was talking to Yeshua and they got in this big discussion. And then Pilate ended up saying, What is truth? I'm not going to go to that chapter It's John and John, but there's a context of the trial scene where he says, what is truth? And of course, that's been debated ever since. It's one of the most famous questions of all time. What is truth? Now, Henry has offered a class at Beth Messiah over the years, the last few years, I think at MSI called The Love of God. And I actually emailed him about six months ago and I said, why don't we offer a class called The Truth of God? And we'll give, you know, kind of contrast that. And uh, he hasn't responded yet. So anyway, maybe he will someday. But uh, we're still working on it. So I thought today that we would review a little bit uh, the issues of truth. And you may say to yourselves, "Oh my goodness, we, you know, we all come here every Saturday, and we go to Beth Messiah, and you know, we all believe in truth, and we all know what truth is, and all those things." Well, uh, believe it or not, it's good to have a little review of this topic. So. Um, we're going to talk about a couple things, and you may say to yourself, well, why are you, you reviewing this? Well, I have found over the years that sometimes we either, you know, get used to focused in one or two areas. We tend to get focused on love so much, we forget truth, or we get focused on truth so much, and we forget love. And as I heard a year ago, someone said, in the older days, the older generation led by truth. They kind of put their left foot out here. They led everyone by truth. And today's younger generation leads with the right foot by love. And so we've had a shift in our culture that, uh, you know, more people, are the younger generations were focused on just love, 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 love. And so we've kind of got a an issue here of trying to balance these out. Now, when it comes to truth, I think that we probably... I hope we all know how much we rely on truth every day. I, I don't think you realize how much you could not even survive without truth. I mean, you hopefully when you get your bank statements in the mail and you look at your money in your bank, you're hoping that your bank gives you the true numbers, right? You know how much money's in your account. If you don't, you're going to be really mad. You're trusting your bank to get it right. Uh, you definitely want your doctors to give you true prescriptions. I assume you do. When you go to get a prescription, your doctor says. This is what you need to take for your sickness, whatever it is. If you've ever been in school, you rely on your teachers and professors to give you true instructions, true assignments. I think we probably want our friends and family members to tell us the truth. We definitely want our politicians to tell us the truth, but forget that one. Anyway, and we definitely want the true instruction, we want true instructions when we make a purchase. You know, you go to the store, you get the instruction, man, you start reading it, how to use this or put it together. If you're like me, it takes about eight hours, and I'm still reading it. But the point is that we rely on truth every day just to survive. Even today's bulletin, you look at it, you're like, hey, Beth Messiah meets at 1030. Hey, Valerie printed this upright. It's true. They meet on 4950 Morse Road. Hey, Howard Silverman's a congregational leader. Here's all these instructions on here. Camp Deem starting Monday. That's true. So we Just, we really rely on truth all the time, and we kind of take it for granted. But uh, sometimes, you know, in our culture, we're not really sure what truth really is, or if we can really know truth, or, you know, maybe it's arrogant to say we can know anything about truth. A few reminders, um, you know, truth is not necessarily uh, something that just works for us. Um, You know, if you've done enough outreach, or you've talked to people from other faiths, like uh, people that are very devoted to their faith. I mean, I've talked to other people from Islamic backgrounds or Mormon backgrounds or other faith backgrounds, and, you know, they generally will say to me, well, you know, I'm, I came to believe this, and I'm following it because it works in all areas of my life. You know, it works. It works in my family. It makes a difference in my life. It makes me more a moral person. Makes me, uh, you know, makes me a better father, a better husband, well, th- that's nice, but that doesn't necessarily mean what you believe is true. I mean, I, I don't really, over all the years, and more I've studied those two religions I just mentioned, I, I don't think they're based on good evidence, and I don't think the Koran is a true revelation from God, and I don't think the Book of Mormon's a true revelation from God. So, just because it works for you doesn't make it true. Secondly, truth is definitely not what makes people feel good. Uh, I hope we all know that uh, the feelings don't always determine truth, and we know the bad news can be true. It's just the way it is. That's that's If you watch the news enough every day, it can be that way. And certainly, truth is not what the majority says is true, because we know in some cases, uh, you know, even if you have a large percentage of people believing something's true, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true, okay? But what about the issue of truth and God's existence? So, I think that what we're going to do. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go and talk a little bit before I go into us as a community. I want to mention a few things about the issue of God's existence and truth. Now, if you haven't noticed, if you if you looked up in culture a lot or study cultural trends, we're not where we were at 50 to 60 years ago. Um, I'm 49, so I I know people tell me this, they're older than me, but we're not where we are. Where we're at. Uh, Years and years ago, when people could just open the Bible and just say, "This is the truth," you know, the Bible says this, and this is true, and God exists, and I know God exists because the Bible says He exists. Well, those days are kind of long past us now. Um, in some places, uh, very it's very hard today to just open the Bible and use it as an authority with a lot of people because the culture has shifted so much and. We have a lot of different faiths, a lot of different belief systems, we have a lot of skepticism, we have cynicism, we have all kinds of philosophies and worldviews, and so a lot of people just don't accept God's existence like that, just because the Bible says so. But there is definitely one way we can know there is a God, that God exists, and I will say this, it's right in front of me, I have it right here, Hershey's Cookies and Cream Bar. You ever tried this? This will show you there is a God. Okay. Okay and I'm going to have it for lunch later on. Um, Some of you may think that's the most disgusting candy bar you've ever had. Some of you just hate white chocolate. I'm a white chocolate guy, and I love them, and I get them every time I go to the dollar store because they're only a dollar. So anyway, Uh, so, you know, when it comes to God's existence, one thing we need to remember, uh, whether there is a God, just from my own experience of uh, dealing with this, uh, you know, God's existence, whether God is real, whether it's, he's based on whether there's a reality that has a, there's God and that God is a real objective reality outside of ourselves, really is not determined by how busy you are, okay? Uh, when you talk to people and they say, well, you know, I've got a lot going on, I've got a successful career, I've got a family, I've got all kinds of awards and people, admire me, and I've got this and that, and I've got this going on, this goal and that goal, that does not really change whether there's a God, okay? God's existence isn't determined by how busy you are. Secondly, uh, God's existence is not determined uh, by whether you see the need for God, okay? I had a student about three weeks ago that came up to me and said, well, if you have a need, I- I'm happy for you. Some people have a need to believe in God, and I'm happy for them, but I don't have that need. That is actually uh, incorrect, because whether you see the need for God does not make God exist. God could still exist even if you don't see the need for him. As a matter of fact, he does exist even if you don't see the need for him, okay? And it's definitely not determined as well by how happy you are or not. Your happiness does not determine whether God exists. Some people think, well, if you're happy, you believe in God, you believe in Yeshua, I'm happy for you, but it's not my thing. Your happiness does not determine obje- an objective truth claim, okay? And whether you don't believe in him doesn't mean he doesn't exist, okay? Your faith does not make God exist. Your, faith doesn't, your lack of faith does not make God not exist. Your faith only appropriates what's in this text, okay? That's what faith is, okay? Faith is not like magic, like, uh, you know, if I believe hard enough, there's going to be an alien in my backyard tomorrow and he'll just pop, there will be an alien, okay? Faith does not make God exist. God already existed, okay, before you even had faith, all right? And so some people just get confused about God's existence, and they go round and round with one, two, three, and four, and that's because we don't understand the difference between objective and subjective truth claims, an objective truth claim is something that you make out, It's outside of yourself. It's got nothing to do with your feelings. It's got nothing to do with your emotions. It's got not determined by any of those things. It's, uh, it's something that is true or it's not true, objectively. If I say, uh, well, you know, I feel that Abraham Lincoln wasn't shot by in, uh, you know, many, many years ago, that doesn't mean he wasn't shot. He was shot or he wasn't shot. It's a historical claim I'm making, okay? So when it comes to God's existence and it comes to truth, God communicates to us a couple ways. He communicates to humans through the world of nature. That means that we don't necessarily need a Bible to know there's a creator. Uh, I did not believe in Yeshua yet. I mean, I hadn't really come to know him until my mid-20s, but I always always believed in a creator. And you don't need the Bible to know some things about God. And I'll talk about that more in a second. However,. God has decided to show more of himself to humanity through history, right? And that's why we have a written text. This is an authority, right? And most of us believe that God is speaking to us through this book, okay? So when it comes to the truth of God and how he communicates to us, let's look at a passage in Romans 1. Would you turn to Romans 1 for a minute? I just want to mention something here about Romans 1. So Romans 1... In the first five to first verses one to five, if you go down like one to 16, Paul goes on. He's talking about how he's set apart for the good news and he talks about Yeshua, how he's descended as a son of David. He's from the seed of David. He's declared the son of God by the resurrection. And he's talking about their calling to take the message of Yeshua to the nations. And then he goes down here. About Talking about the gospel is good news, it's the power of salvation to those who believe, to the, to the uh, Jew first and then to the Greek. And then he goes down to verse uh, 18 and he says here in verse 18 something kind of interesting as he, he goes on for a while here. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident with them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So we see here that Paul seems to communicate that Humans should be able to look at the world of nature and look at creation, what has been made, not like uh, be able to see God directly. But we can look at features of reality in the natural world through what has been made and infer there is a creator, right? We can infer that there is a design uh, behind creation. And then it's interesting that he says here what happens is that people do not accept that truth, right? They suppress the truth. He says here in verse 18, it says they suppress that truth, they push it down, they dismiss it, and even though it's clear that God is, a, is there as the, their creator, they turn away from that, and then an exchange takes place where they start to worship the creation, right, instead of the creator, and God really, uh, what happens with idolatry, as you read through the rest of this chapter, it's really idolatry as a background, The God just says, okay, well, you can have that then if you don't want me, you don't want to worship me as creator, and you want, don't accept that truth, then go ahead. Have what you want. I'll give it to you, and you can go ahead and worship the creation, and then there's a judgment. So it's interesting that you know, God definitely shows he is real, uh, that he exists, and there is truth behind uh, who he is through the creation. Now, I have a contrast here. I just want to read this. It's kind of interesting, but um, here's the exact thing we're seeing in Romans 1 in this book right here by a guy named Edward Wilson, kind of a depressing statement, but an example of Romans one in practice, right? He says here, we were created not by supernatural intelligence, but by chance and necessity as one species out of millions of species in Earth's biosphere, hope and wish for otherwise as we will, there's no evidence of an external grace shining down on us, no demonstrable destiny or purpose assigned to us, no second life or the end of the present one. We are, as it seems, completely alone and then it may be opinion is a very, in my opinion, a very good thing. It means we are completely free. Boy, doesn't that sound like Romans 1, right? Just someone rejecting the creator and going right to the creation. And of course, we know the results there. Now, God has also chosen to reveal himself to humans in another way. You don't need the Bible necessarily to see it. And that is in Romans 2. Turn over to Romans 2 for a minute. Just go over there one chapter over. You're like, hey, I don't have to turn far. This is great. So you go to Romans 2, and the context, Paul is talking about the partiality issue with Jew and Gentile and the Torah. He's talking about the law or the Torah. And he comes down to verse 12 to 15, and he says here, let's see, in verse 12, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who will be just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, notice he says here, But when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law or law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Messiah Yeshua. Now, Paul is aware of the fact that the Jewish people were given the written law. They're given the Torah, right? The Torah is given to Israel. It was given to them for their sanctification. It wasn't given to Gentiles, okay? It was given to Israel. But he says Gentiles, non-Jewish people, have a way that they're accountable to God, and that is through the moral law that God has placed on their hearts. There is a law that is not the written law, it's this moral law. Now, this book I have up here on the screen, I know you've all read it, um, it says we, that was a joke, it says we will, or what we can't not know, and this author really says it's so apparent that humans know this moral law. It's so obvious If you look around culture, they know there's a moral law written in their hearts, and this is why what do people do? They look all around culture and what are common sayings when they see something that's not right. That's not fair. That's not right. I want justice. That's morally wrong. That's evil. What the heck is wrong with people? You ever do that? You watch the news like, what is wrong with people? And it's interesting that Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the most famous authors of all time. His books still sell in the millions. But when he wrote The Abolition of Man, he did this study of all different cultures across the world. And he noticed that all cultures, no matter what their background was, seemed to bear witness of having some sort of universal moral knowledge. They have this understanding of universal moral truths that just transcend all cultures, some basic. Aspect of having moral knowledge. And he said, you know, this really kind of matches up with the Bible that Paul talks about this that the non Jewish nations have the moral law written in their hearts. They know there's a right and a wrong intuitively. So it's kind of like what we call intuitive knowledge, where you just know something automatically. Okay? I know that's right. I know that's wrong. And that's why a lot of times we get upset when we see something, this moral law violated in our culture. That's why we generally sometimes say, that's not fair, that's not right, I want justice, things like that, because this moral law is being violated, okay? So any moral system that we have in this room, anybody sitting here, including all, that's all of us, and anybody outside of this congregation today, generally holds to a couple things in this moral law issue. Most people have moral values Those are things like love, justice, mercy. That's your value system. Like you love people, you want to show them justice and mercy, things like that. That's what motivates your behavior. And you have moral duties, okay? Moral duties are moral obligations, things that you ought and not ought to do. Uh, You ought not to steal my candy bar today, right? Because I'm going to get mad. So that's one thing. That's a moral obligation. So we mostly live our lives by moral values and moral duties. But the question becomes... You know, like, where do these things come from? You know, what's the source of these moral values and moral duties we have? Does it come from society? Or do we, just as individuals, create these things ourselves? Or is there a transcendent creator? Is there a God who's revealed a moral law where these things flow from? Okay, of course, Paul's saying there is a place, there is a moral law. Now, today, in today's culture, a lot of people believe in uh, what's called culture relativism, that people derive their morality from culture, right? It just varies culture to culture. Every culture forms their own morality, and nobody has the right morality, it just varies from culture to culture, right? You ever heard that before? People raised in a certain culture, they think what's morally right or wrong is for their culture, America thinks what's morally right for their culture, and that settles that. That's why when the Nazis were being tried after what they did in uh, Germany, they actually said to the judges in the trial scenes, they said, we really can't be held accountable because we're only going by the dictates of our culture. And do you know what happened? The judge in that trial scene said, he says, no, there's a moral law above you that's judging you, actually, we're gonna appeal to. And that's how the Nazis were convicted based on that moral law. And then there is, I'm sorry, then there is individual relativism where obviously a lot of people just think each person forms their own morality, right? We just come up with our own moral obligations and moral judgments, and it's based on our personal preference. That is obviously the reigning view of our culture, and that's why we have moral schizophrenia, right? Nobody agrees. I mean, for example, let me give you this one. I saw this this week. Uh, Ted's talk, someone said this in a Ted's talk. Um, Most of us would say, well, that's just not morally right, but in many cases, that's the way the culture is now. People just form their own morality, and we don't agree. We simply don't agree. And, and you know, this is why uh, Peter Kreft, uh, who I had at Ohio State this year, made said something that's so relevant. He said here, no culture in history has ever embraced moral relativism and survived. Our own culture, therefore, will either be the first and disprove history's clearest lesson or persist in its relativism and die or repent of its relativism and live. There is no other option. So basically he's saying that if we carry on and each person forms their own morality and the culture just has all these different moral truths, then basically we'll destruct. And, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, we, we have some of that already happening, but we know we're still here. But well, it's interesting to see what happens over time. So God shows himself to be true through creation. People don't need the Bible to know there's a creator through a moral law. They don't necessarily need the Bible to know there's a moral law. But For us, obviously, that's a couple ways, but for us, ultimately, God decided to reveal himself through Yeshua. The truth of Yeshua is God's kind of one of the the most common ways that God shows himself to be real through the truth of Yeshua, but we need to remember something. So we jump to Yeshua. There's something we're missing here that comes before Yeshua in history, Israel, okay? We cannot just simply say that Yeshua is the ultimate revelation of God without understanding the role of Israel, you see. Because without Israel the people, Israel the land, and the role in history, there would be no Messiah. There would be no Messiah of Israel and the nations. And so that's a good lesson for us when you're studying the Bible that you always want to go left to right. As we say at Beth Messiah, study the Bible left to right. Now, then when we come to the truth of the good news... We look at a past. Turn back to Romans one for a second here, since you're in Romans two. You're like, hey, I don't have to go far again. One chapter back, but Paul talks here about the good news, and he says here, you know, it's interesting that um, have you ever done a a research or done a study of every time the word gospel or good news is mentioned in the Bible? Have you ever noticed how many different times it's used in different contexts, different ways? It ever really isn't always presented in one way, and Sometimes we like methods, you know, we say like, well, you know, the, the gospel is Yeshua died and died and you need to accept him to go to heaven, right? And that's the good news. Well, look what Paul says here in Romans 1. What he says the good news is, he says the word gospel in this context. Romans 1, 1 to 7, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Messiah Yeshua, called as an apostle, set apart for the good news, the gospel of God, <coughs> which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Messiah Yeshua our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you're also called a Messiah Yeshua. To, who, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So it's interesting. He says the good news, this is one of Paul's gospels, he says the good news is the Messiah was announced beforehand in the Holy Scriptures in the Tanakh, and the good news is he's a descendant of David according to flesh. He's declared the Son of God by the resurrection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I challenge you to, Go tell somebody that the good news is that, like what he says in Romans 1, 1-5, he, that the uh, good news is about the Davidic king or the good news is about someone that, that Yeshua has mentioned before in the Jewish scriptures. That's not really the good news message I hear a lot. A lot of times they hear the good news message is you're bad and accept Yeshua in your heart and you go to heaven when you die. But the good news is so much bigger than that. It's about the Davidic king, Okay. And remember, the truth of the good news is given by a messenger, and that means that God conveys this truth through us. That is the predominant way that God communicates this truth to others. Now, there is a very interesting passage in John 16 when Yeshua is talking about, before he's about to die, about how the Ruach is going to be sent, the spirit of truth, and his role in this world. And it's interesting in John 16, look what he says here, it's kind of interesting, John 16, 7 to 10, I have it on the screen here, I didn't want you to have to look it up in your Bible. So he says here, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. The helper, the ruach, will not come to you, and if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, it's very interesting that Yeshua says here that the Ruach will convict the world. He says here that he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Then he says concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in me. He doesn't say the Ruach will convict people of 60 or 70 sins in their lives. Like when I came to faith in Messiah, uh, Howard was actually preaching on Matthew. That was like a long time ago. Um, And he mentioned, he started talking about the Messiah. You know, the the Ruach did not target in my life all the issues in my life that were wrong, like whatever sins I had in my life. He didn't, I didn't have like a list in my mind. I was going through. oh, I got to clean that up. Oh, I gotta clean that up now. Now I gotta get rid of that in my life. And now I gotta get this right in my life before I come to Yeshua. No. The only thing he convicted me of was my need for the Messiah, okay? And that is what he does with people. You see, that's what the Ruach does. He targets who Yeshua is, because Yeshua is the only one that can forgive because he is perfect. And, you know, sometimes we, you know, some people get the idea that, hey, I gotta clean up my act before I come to Yeshua. No. You come to Yeshua as you are. That's what we all do, and he takes us where we are. But it's interesting, you know, the Ruach always convicts people of their need for the Messiah, okay? That's the goal. Is to, the role of the Ruach is to glorify the a Messiah, right? To draw attention to the Messiah. That's what he does, okay? And so it's very interesting. Now, so let's just remind ourselves of what I said. So when it comes to truth in our world, God conveys the truth of who he is, through creation, through a moral law, through history, through the nation of Israel, through Yeshua, through the good news, and through us who convey that good news to others. We are the ones that communicate that to other people. Most people come to faith in Messiah through us telling them, okay? Very few people come to faith just sitting around one day thinking, hey, I think I believe in Yeshua. I mean, there are cases of Muslims in other countries coming to faith through dreams and visions, but if they don't have access to a Bible... And a messenger, God can use something else, but mostly in the United States and other places where they have access to the text, he communicates it through us. Now, what about truth and the believer? Okay, we talked a little bit about how God communicates to an unbelieving world, but what about the, uh, the person who's embraced the Messiah, okay? And, you know, I got to be honest, I thought about this a lot over the last uh, several years, um, in my own life and just looking on community, just, just in life in general. But, you know, sometimes you come to faith, we, many of us come to faith in the Messiah, and sometimes, you know, we still have those same struggles. We may have had attitudes or things that we had a problem with before we came to faith, and maybe during our walk with God, we still struggle with some sin or attitude or something. It just kind of lingers. It's just still there, and we're like, I really want this transformed. I why is this so hard? And why is it that I don't see the change in others? You know, I want that person to change. I want this person to change. I mean, why doesn't God just zap them? You know what I mean? I mean, after all, he's all powerful and he should just do something, you know, in that person's life. And sometimes, you know, we, we ask these questions and I've asked these questions as well. Well, I have a little chart here that uh, might be helpful and I think it's a good guideline for us. And first of all, see at the top, uh, once again, we have truth, because there is no truth, nobody gets transformed. Truth is the thing that transforms us, right? And truth is what changes us. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, go over a few of these here. And the fact is that uh, I actually find that all of these, uh, the going, you know, right, left, around the circle, God does seem to uh, use these things in my own life and others to bring transformation. Now it's interesting in the Bible that when it comes to the word truth, emet and alethia, the Hebrew and the Hebrew, the word for truth. You know, when you when you look it up in all the different contexts and the way it's used in different chapters, the different audiences, it generally conveys a sense of firmness, stability, constancy, faithfulness, reliability, unchangeableness. God, of course you know, God himself is truth, okay? Truth flows from his nature. God doesn't get truth, and then he gives it to us. He doesn't read a textbook or take a class. Truth flows from his very nature, right? God is trustworthy. And then the Greek there, you know, it's kind of like, it's, you know, it does mean a state of factuality or reality or something not hidden, the state of being evident. There's a little overlap there, but even when God would raise up prophets when they would have to say something to the people, you know, he warned about uh, false prophets about falsely prophesizing, because if you said something, you're representing God, and God can only speak truth. God cannot lie, right? And so if a prophet blew it, we know there were consequences, and so God is very concerned about truth, and we know scripturally in Psalm 19, 8 to, eight to 9, says here, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. In most cases, I think we all know by now, in a world around us that's always shifting and changing and people are changing, that sometimes God is all you've got, right? God does not change, He is a God of truth, and we have to trust Him. The way God changes us, though, as far as truth, one of the main ways God teaches us, or changes us, of course, is through the truth of the text. Now, when you read that text in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, we like to quote this a lot, have you ever noticed that uh, a lot of people don't realize that when Paul wrote this, there was no New Testament? Did you know that, when he wrote this? So when he's saying all scriptures is inspired by God, graphe, Scripture, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, righteousness, a man of God, maybe adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you know he's actually talking about the Tanakh here? Because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Is that interesting? Like, oh my gosh, how about that? Now, it's not that the New Testament isn't inspired, or the Brit Shah isn't inspired. It's just that sometimes when we read the Bible, you know, the way people are disciples sometimes, it's kind of like sometimes Yeshua comes I'm a new covenant believer, and that old covenant or the Old Testament is just irrelevant, okay? I mean, we don't do that Beth Messiah, far be it if we did, then you're in trouble. But the point is that we, um, you know, we sometimes forget that when Paul writes this, it was certainly written, he's talking about the Jewish scriptures. Now, we don't have a perfect grasp of how inspiration works. You know, it's not like dictation, like the Muslims believe about the Quran, where God's like communicating to humans in like a typewriter effect. There's some sort of relationship between the human and, the, and God, like the human element and the divine element coming together and giving us a written text. But the point is that the Bible is the primary way the truth of God is conveyed to us. We can trust this is God speaking to us, that he's communicating to us through a written text, okay? And when we want transformation, God uses the Bible a few ways. Certainly, you know, there's devotional reading where we just read the text. We're just reading it. We're not looking up Hebrew and Greek and we're trying to figure out every exegetical issue and uh, trying to look up commentaries and everything. The text, we we just read it and we just take it in. You know, we're just reading it and God's interacting with us and we're just reading it and asking God to speak to us through the text and the illumination is happening and we're just reading the text, right? That's part of just meditation and just reading the Bible. And then Uh, Of course, there is study. There's time for study. That's worship too. We do study the text and we look, you know, do the Hebrew and Greek and the exegesis and all that stuff. And then, of course, uh, sometimes we might be reading the text and we say, okay, God seems to be saying something in this circumstance in the text that has an application in my life. If this time in my life where I'm at and that can happen, you know, it might be an example to follow in the text. You read something about Paul or Yeshua or somewhere else like, I want to follow their example. Or it's a command to obey. Like you're reading, Yeshua gives a command, uh, love one another, that's a command I give. That just leaps off of the page. you like, okay, I need to practice that in my life. Or there's an error to avoid. There's some mistake someone made in the text, they did something wrong, they sinned, and you're like, hey, I don't I want to avoid that. You know, I don't want to repeat the same mistakes they did. So the point is that We can be transformed through the word of God. It can happen. And then, of course, hearing solid teaching and preaching is important as well. So the word of God is definitely something that God uses to transform us. Now, may I say from experience, if you have a hard time believing 66 books, because the Bible is 66 books, is true, meaning that you just don't trust the text, which, you know, there's many issues with the Bible. There's 66 books. If you have a hard time with certain areas of the Bible, there are good resources out there that can help you with that. I run to people all the time that can't seem to embrace a certain part of the Bible, and therefore they can't embrace that part, they can't embrace other parts. And so they don't have a confident view of the text, okay? Now, there's always going to be questions, no doubt, the rest of our lives, But the point is that we can work on that, and we can get some of those questions answered. So I encourage you to do so if you need to do that. Now, what about wisdom? Some of us are seeking, uh, we're making decisions. Some of us go to God regularly, if you're like me, and most of us. We have choices to make. We have decisions to make, and we need wisdom. And God tells us, you know, to come to him and ask for wisdom. James talks about that, James 1. And we need wisdom. Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. Okay. God is committed to showing us the truth of our situation. He wants us to grasp the truth, receive the truth and apply the truth. That's what he's committed to do in giving us wisdom. But one of the reasons we don't always get the wisdom is because we don't want to do it. Okay. We don't want to do what God says. And so a lot of times I think that holds back God giving us the wisdom we need. But God is so willing to show us the truth of our situation. He will show you the reality that you're in right now. This stage of your life, he's willing to show you this is what's going on right here. This is the way I see it. And this is what needs to happen. This is the choice that needs to be made so you can get to over there. These are decisions that need to happen. He may be saying that to us congregationally. He may say, this is where you're as a congregation. This is my wisdom. This is where you need to be. These are the steps of actions you need to take. But we need to be willing to uh, receive that truth. We need to be open to the truth. But God is willing to give us truth. And God can never lie. It's always right. God is always right. And then, uh, Paul, of course, we need to know the truth of the Bible because a couple of reasons Just uh, just want to mention also is that we need to be able to know False gospels from true gospels. Uh, there's a lot of false messages out there today. I, Columbus is a kind of a haven for a lot of weird groups. Have you noticed that? Uh, I've noticed that more and more. They're popping up one after the other. Uh, there was one, a new one just popped up a couple weeks ago I saw. They tried to talk to me about it. So, and that's because, uh, And that's why we need to be able to exercise discernment. When you know the word, you know the truth of the word, You're able to know right from wrong, truth from error. We're able to have good discernment, okay? Now, let's go back to that chart. Now, another way, of course, God changes us, transforms us is, uh, it says here, wise people change you on the far right. How about that one? Okay, so God uses the truth of wise people. That means that God definitely uses community to transform us. If you're not rooted in community, then you probably are not going to experience the transformation God wants. And that means that perhaps some of us are uh, checked out. We're here, but we're still checked out. That means that we maybe show up at services, but we're not really rooted in community. What do I mean by being rooted in community? That means that you have uh, covenantal relationships with certain people that you can go to, okay? And that means you have to have trust with people. Not everybody's going to connect. Not everybody's going to be able to run to everybody. Not every, people are, some people are going to connect more than others. Uh, I know I have people in my life who I go to, and I don't connect with every single person. And some people just don't connect. That happens. But the point is, if you're not in community, you can't connect, okay? But remember, as I say number two here, when you talk to people about your life, and you're looking for God to speak through them into your life, they're not infallible, okay? They're human. And counsel is always fallible. Counsel is not infallible, okay? Nobody that ever gives counsel should ever assume they're giving an infallible word from God, okay? They can be wrong, they could be wrong, and they could be right, but they could be wrong. So we need to be able to understand as we're receiving truth from wise people that we need to be able to test that against the word of God. We need to pray about it. We need to have good understanding and good discernment. And, but God certainly does speak through wise people. Um, I know that there's many times in my life where God's spoken through others into my life, and there's some times where uh, I definitely hear people say things to me, and I'm just like, that is not from God. So I, that's because I always weigh it against the text. But, and so, but the other thing is that we have to be humble enough to go to people and have people in our lives and allow them to work with us on issues, Okay. Uh, you will not be transformed as long as you're a Lone Ranger believer sitting around thinking, well, I can overcome this issue in my life on my own, and I don't need anyone. That's, that's a westernized American culture phenomenon, okay? That is not biblical. So we need key people in our lives, and God uses wise people to speak truth to us, no doubt. And then, of course, when it comes to speaking the truth in love, as I said, Yeshua's example not too much love, not too much truth. Truth and love to go together. That's what he does. He's the embodiment of truth and love, right? They go together. And then the chart also says here, the suffering and struggle can change us. Ooh, that's a a tough one, right? God definitely does use suffering and struggle to transform us. Now, Sometimes in our lives, there's some decisions we've made that we just suffer the consequences. We just, the sufferings inflicted by us has been something self-afflicted. I mean, sometimes we live out the consequences and God still uses that situation in our life. He's going to use it. He didn't want it, but it happened and it's there. That's what it is. That's our reality and we just face the consequences. And God takes that situation. He uses it for his glory. And then some suffering we observe in our own lives or others, we just don't have a good reason for it. We just don't know why, why it occurs. We, we can read every textbook there is out there on the situation, which I have stacks of them, and I still haven't concluded there is any good reason. But the point is that sometimes that suffering, we just don't know. But if we go to God and we say, in the situation, we ask him to use it, and we embrace him and we yield to him, he will take that situation and use it to transform us. And most of us know when we have suffered and struggled in a certain area, we're more apt to be able to minister to others effectively. I have not been through certain things people have been through, but if I go through it, I know who I'm going to. They've been through that. I want to hear what they have to say because now they can empathize with me, right? And God allowed that in that person's life so they can minister to others. Sometimes that's what happens. And then finally, remember a couple things, that truth in our emotions... When you're suffering or something's happening in your life, sometimes the truth is the only thing that keeps you to close, over to close to God over the long haul. That means that sometimes we have to go with what we know and what is the truth over how we feel. And that can be tough, but in many cases, we have to rely on what we know about God, his promises, what he said in his word over how we feel at that moment because feelings can be very deceptive and they're up and down, right? And so truth can be the thing that keeps us going over the long haul. And you know what this means? This means that we need to understand truth in convictions. And may I suggest, hey, Howard says that. I just sounded like Howard. Anyway, I didn't mean to do that. I just sounded just like Howard. May I suggest. Um, Lucy got him a t-shirt years ago, I think, that says, may I suggest. I think he has it somewhere in his drawer. But, it's very important that we pass on convictions to our young people, that we convey to them they need to develop convictions. Convictions are things that, uh, obviously, things that you're convinced about, you're in the state of being convinced, they're beliefs or uh, you know, uh, things that you have formed that really make who you are. But those convictions are things that have been developed through experience, study, looking at evidence, things like that, but they're so rooted in you, they're rooted in conscious that you just won't budge, right? I'm convi- I have a conviction that Yeshua rose from the dead. There's not a whole lot that's going to overturn that, okay? You can show me counter evidence. I can look at it. I've done that, but I have a very strong conviction Yeshua rose from the dead, and convictions are sometimes what will keep our young people sticking with the faith over the long haul, not preferences, if you have preferences, you're just going to be like this and like this, and I prefer to follow God in this direction. I don't prefer to follow God in that direction. I I don't really know this. I'm not really convicted about being in community. I'm not convicted about sharing my faith. I'm not convicted about reading the word. I mean, it just goes on and on. The point is that we need to uh, pass on convictions and communicate to them the need for convictions, okay? Okay, very important. And then finally, uh, you know, Let's just face it. You know, if someone says, well, if it's really true, the good news about Yeshua dying, rising from the dead, he brought the reign of God, and it's true, why don't you see more transformation in the lives of myself or myself or others? Well, really, it's not God's issue. It's not God's fault. It's really just us. Generally, it's our own will, right? We don't yield to God. And then sometimes we forget that we are not in a state of glorification yet. We haven't gone on to be with the Lord. There's still. Sin in this world, there's sin around us, and we still sin, and there's temptations. We're not in that stage yet, okay, where we have no sin, where we have a world that is totally redeemed, and we live in that tension. And sometimes we want others to be at a certain state, and they're not. We're all in the state of sanctification. We're being made and conformed to the image of Messiah, okay? And so we will definitely see transformation if we yield over to God, but we don't always see it as much because we're not in that glorified state yet. So let us remember that truth is something that really is what keeps us going in the long haul in our faith, and truth is so important today. And let us not fall into the dichotomy of either love or truth. They go hand in hand, okay? And so I hope today that you think about your faith, why you think it's true, how God communicates truth to others, and how he's using truth, these areas right here in that chart, how he's using those issues right now in your life to transform you. Because we can experience transformation through truth, through these ways and these uh, things that God uses, okay, today. So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for you are a God of truth. We thank you, God, that truth flows from who you are, that you are a God who gives us truth, you give us the truth of your word, you give us the truth of Yeshua, you give us the truth of uh, people around us, they speak truth to us. And Lord, I just pray today that you would just uh, help us to remember that uh, you're working in our lives, and whatever you say to us uh, through your word or through others, through a sermon or through uh, prayer, whatever it is, that it's true, you know, that you are a God that can be trusted. And I pray today you bless each person here. And may we remember that you are trustworthy in all circumstances. And we pray this all in the Messiah's name. Amen.